Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got a very interesting guest with me, a chap called Tom Berry. Now, Tom is a non-executive director. He's been a journalist. He's a part-time secondary school teacher. He's done a whole load of things. So I don't really know at this stage where this conversation is going to end up. It could go in any direction at all. But hello, Tom. Welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Hello, Kevin. I think being described as being interesting is one of the nicest things anyone said to me recently. So I'll, I'll take that. OK. It's uh, very nice to be here. And uh, yeah, I don't know where it's going to go to either, but so, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Tom, let's let's start off by t- you telling the audience a little bit about you. And you're a journalist, and you're a journalist talking to finance directors and CFOs. Yeah, I was. Um, we're going back twenty years now. Yeah, I'm guessing not that much has changed. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, no, I used to be the deputy editor of a magazine called Financial Director. I used to write for Accountancy Age and, and other publications back in the old VNU days. Yeah. Um, under the editor of Andy Sawyers, who's, who's subsequently retired, but uh, I'm still just about hanging on in there. Yeah, no, accountancy age, that rings a bell or two. And my dad was a, a chartered accountant in practice and accountancy age used to drop through the front door every week. And uh, I used to occasionally pick it up and think, this is the most boring publication I've ever read. <laughs> well this is the thing it's trade publications right there's there's yeah it depends i mean if, if it's like all of this stuff if it drops through your letterbox whether it's a uh, a, a physical letterbox with a piece of dead trees so a magazine or whether it's a virtual letterbox with the podcast such as this it has to be relevant now you know a publication called accountancy age is not relevant to you as a as a as a young as a young kid but it no. may well have been relevant to your to your to your dad. At least I hope it was. And hopefully exactly. the podcast will be the same thing. And that, that's interesting because I actually do another podcast alongside this, the, the Next Hundred Days podcast with Graham Arrowsmith, and done three hundred episodes and done far less of this one. And because the Next Hundred Days is much more general and is designed to appeal to a lot more people, it actually appeals to less people remarkably because we we pinpoint this podcast to the cfo the future cfo um it's a very very tight audience trying to get to issues that really matter to those people and that does seem to make a difference in listener numbers yeah i guess i guess it can do i mean general business stuff the problem is where do you start Mm. um i've always had a theory that businesses are only really interested in three things it might be four things these days, but the three things are always just making money, saving money and managing risk. Right. Yeah. And you, you do those three things, you do them well, you've got a sustainable business. Um, and so, you know, it, it can be very easy to overcomplicate business. Now, I think there is a fourth thing as well, and that's managing corporate reputation and managing your own personal reputation, which I think has come more to the fore these days. Mm-hmm. But, but, but in general, business is fairly simple. Yeah. It's just the execution that's complicated. Yeah, I was reading something the other day that said actually growing a business is quite simple as well. If you get 10% more sales, you persuade them to spend 10% more money and you get them to buy 10% more often, you grow your business by 60%. 
Dead yeah, easy. That's all yeah, you yeah. need to do. As long as you manage your cost base at the same time, everyone's laughing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? what why do we all make a fuss of this business thing then, Tom? Mm-hmm. Your, yeah, your years in communication. You know, look, look, because, because, you know, the textbooks and the, and the platitudes and everything we talk about here isn't reality. You know, all the case studies you get at business school, and I teach A-level business, right, at a secondary school local to me in South London. And, and I look at the uh, case studies and the materials, and frankly, it's rubbish because everything goes in nice, neat, straight lines. It goes up and it goes down. And you see where your economies of scale goes up and you see where your diseconomies of scale comes in and people can extrapolate data from it and for some sort of insight. But it's not true. But we all know the reality of business is that, you know, day to day, anything can happen. Anything can come in and sideswipe you. And also, you know, it, it's all about people. People yes. make ridiculous decisions, especially when they're stressed. And, and the highs are really, really high in business. And the lows are really, really low. And, and more often than not, they all happen on the same day. And you're supposed to be thinking the world's, you know, going in a linear way. Well, it's not. It doesn't work that way. Mm. So, Tom, I know, I know a lot of stuff that you've done has been about communication. Yeah. And about helping, helping people get messages across. What what sort of things have you found com the, the common things to talk about in, in those situations, the high highs, the low lows? Oh gosh. Um it, don't panic is the first one. Yeah. You know, it's 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 the old um uh, Corporal Jones situation. Yeah. Just don't panic. Um I I used to do a lot of crisis communications and I used to be, you know, asked by businesses to come in when something went really bad. Yeah. And I would always spend the first day at least stopping people from doing things. Because, you know, if something goes wrong, everybody loves a crisis deep down because we're built for it. We have this thing called adrenaline that courses through our bloodstream and makes us want to do things. We want to pick up the phone and, you know, make things happen and, you know, be the solution to the problem. Whether that's because of positive reason, because you want to help, or a negative reason, because you want to assuage this great great feeling of panic you have in your in your in your in your body so stopping doing things and not communicating is often the first thing you have to do it's it seems counterintuitive um, for a communications person such as me to say this but it's often better not to say anything you know and fds are good at this stuff right fds in general and cfos in general are, are, are good, fact-based, prudent people who believe in stewardship, right? Who, who, who believe in governance. And so you should translate that at all times into being a very calming influence and, and getting your facts right um, when it comes to communicating. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, and I've seen FDs do this before, where they become sort of paragons of analysis paralysis and they need all the facts and everything right and before they say anything by which time the the world has moved on so you know um getting your facts not saying things and then being sure when you say them i think is rule number one but there's lots of other rules with communications and being open and honest and transparent and and authentic uh, you know are other things you have to do but it can be difficult in a corporate machine to to do those things so tell me a little bit more about that. Open, honest, truthful. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we, we live in a world where, I mean, it's Warren Buffett, wasn't it, who said that it, it takes 20 years to build a reputation, 20 minutes or five minutes to destroy it. You exactly. Know? And, and I, it, I think in the world of social media, that's hmm. become even easier. It, yeah. it, it's become easier. I, I don't think social media is entirely correct, <laughs> you know, but yeah. we have to live with it. Yeah. Um, but but I, the, the idea that people will judge you on whether they believe that you believe, if that makes sense. Yes. People will judge you very, very quickly on whether you are being quote unquote authentic. And it's a horribly overused marketing word, but it's it very much sort of important, right? Do you really mean it when you say we're really excited by this new product launch or this new CEO joining, or whatever it might be? And, and most of the time, people don't mean it. They get excited about spending time with their family or going skiing or doing whatever else they do. They're not excited about going into work. So, so you know, a, a healthy dose of um, realism, honesty, being truthful when things are not going so well, but always having a solution to get out of it. This is what we're going to do about it. This is the problem we know about it. This is where we're going to go to go, you know, uh, going to go with it is, is, um, is really important. But I, I, I sort of call it stepping into a problem. Um, if you have to deliver bad news, step into delivering the bad news and give something positive when you do it. Don't step away from it and get defensive about it because that really, more often than not, it doesn't help you. Yeah, and that, that bad news one is a is an interesting one. I mean, the the last company that I work for full time um, suffered very heavily after the twenty ten general election because they were they were a consultancy, yeah, which had essentially one client, UK government. Mm-hmm. UK government overnight stopped spending money, mm-hmm. and as a result, as a company, we had a lot of of bad news stories. Um, I think at times we were we were guilty of of not telling the truth soon enough. We weren't we were guilty of of not really communicating what we were doing about things. Um, it's it it is a very interesting area how you communicate that sort of bad news. And I guess as the finance person in the business, you're the person that's putting the forecast together. You're the person that's seeing the numbers first you're probably the first to know about the bad news as it's coming in. Well, you probably know the truth in a, in, a, in a more plain and sort of sharp and tangible way than everyone else does. Yeah. Just whether you can articulate it. You know deep down it's not looking good because you've got all the ratios and all the numbers that tell you the projections aren't looking good. Yeah. But you're not necessarily the one who is either trained or the one who is empowered to, to, to deliver that news in a... In a in, in, a, in a, you know, sensible and human and direct way. So what do you think the skills of a CFO probably needs in order to communicate those sorts of things? Right. What, what, um, what advice would you be giving to the prospective CFO to, what, to, to improve their communication skills? Okay, so it's the same advice I give to anybody in a board, whether a CFO or not. Um, you cannot reinvent yourself if you don't have these skills. Good point. All right. So that's so something I, I say all, all the time about, about personal development, playing to your strengths instead of your weaknesses. 
Um, the, I'm reminded of um, a, a quote, John Coombe, who was the um, chief financial officer of GlaxoSmithKline way back in the day. And I interviewed him and, and I, was, I was a very green journalist about finance director issues in those days. And I asked him about the changing role of the finance director and should CFOs right. and finance directors become more strategic? And he went, Tom, I've been asked that question for 20 years. And 20 years ago, it was a bloody stupid question to ask. Mm. And it stopped me in my tracks. And it made me realize that, you know, from 20 years before then to that moment to 20 years post, which is now 40 years, nothing really has changed. Mm. Finance directors have always been strategic. They've always had to communicate. It's just that they're human beings. Yeah. And some of them are good at it and some of them are not. And if they're not good at it, then yes, you can you can go on training, you can become more articulate. And if you're going to sit on a public board, then yes, you have to be good at communicating because you, you've got a public facing role. But but most of the time, just surround yourself with people who are um, exhibit the, the strengths, which are your weaknesses. Have somebody who is good at communicating within your team if you know that you are not. And don't try and hire people like yourself. Um, and, you know, it is possible to communicate as a function, as a business function, rather than always thinking I have to be the one that has to communicate because some people just aren't cut out for it. I mean, look at C CEOs, right? The amount of CEOs who are spokespeople for their organisations and they really shouldn't be. Hmm. They're the person that's had the idea in the first place, set the business up in the first place, driven to make it work, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can communicate that vision particularly well to other people. No. And I think the personality as well that you often get with a finance director, I describe them as the owl of the business, the one with all the knowledge, the one with the detail, but it doesn't make them into the sales and marketing type personality that could be very good at telling folk what's going on. I forget which FD it was who said this to me, but but the, the quote was, if FTs were good at promoting themselves, they'd be in marketing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly why I followed a finance career and not a marketing career. <laughs> you are, right? You know, I think it's okay to be a finance person. It is allowed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? but, but, but at the same time, you also have to understand how the other functions of the business operate around you. Yes. So, so you have to understand how sales and marketing works, marketing in particular and communications in particular. They are there to help you. You should spend some time with them. They're not just a cost center. Right? They do add value. Um, so, so you, you know, coming circuitously round to answering your question, I think go talk to your comms people and get to know them better. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting one as well about hiring folk. You said hire people that compliment you, hire people that aren't like yourself. Now that in itself is difficult because we always naturally drift towards um, hiring people like ourselves. I think, I think there's a natural tendency to do that. It's not that difficult though, if you get rid of subconscious bias in your hiring. Mm. Um, and, you know, subconscious bias is manifest in many different ways. It's manifest in terms of gender, in terms of age, in terms of ability, in terms of uh, racial profiling, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, 
you can just knock out subconscious bias in one or two steps and the way that you get CVs in, for example, the way you brief your recruiters. Yeah. Never, never have someone's name, their age, uh, where they're from. Uh, you can take their education out. You can tell recruiters to take all this stuff out. Yeah. Because then you can just hire on attributes that you're really interested in. How inquisitive are they? They're good communicators. Yes, qualifications are important, but you know, let's let's not get too hung up about where you went. I mean, yes. that's always a bit of a bit of a problem, right? Um, so you know, you can, and there are plenty of consultancies that will help you remove that bias from your system and from your recruiting system. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, Tom, after a, a career in journalism, yeah you've ended up going all the way to being a, a non-executive director board advisor. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about how that came about. How did, how did that seems like a very big transition to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, is it a big transition? Uh, uh, firstly, Kevin, I've never had a plan in my life. I am, I am so on the non-planning non-analysis side of my personality right that I always hire people around me who are good at planning and numbers and stuff um so you know I I fell into journalism because I fell into journalism I I met someone down a pub actually um who who said can you write and I went yeah I guess so and they said yeah okay well do you want to come in tomorrow and I started a job at the Financial Times the next day so, it, you know, you know, my my career has sort of moved in those um, th- those waves. But how did I get to be an NED? Well, um, when I left journalism in 2005, um, I needed money. Uh, yeah. And my, yeah. so I, I, a reasonable I, reason for looking for something. Yeah, I had a young son and I knew that journalism was never going to pay the way. Um, and I was buying a flat uh, with my wife and um, a PR agency who I knew from from being a journalist said, do you want to come and join us as a, as a director? Do you want to come in? We're starting this new agency. We're doing some interesting stuff. Do you want to come and be a, a director of an agency? Now, I'd never been a director before. I'd never worked in agency. I'd never worked in PR. But I said yes because they offered to double my salary, which was fairly convenient. Um, But I gave myself six months and I said, I'll just go back into journalism. Um, And I stayed in the industry, PR and marketing for 16 years Um, through a variety of guises. I went to San Francisco, but I've worked in Europe. Um, I worked for some of the big agencies. Um, And then I, I, bought out an agency I was brought on as a CEO because of I think because of my sort of slightly cynical journalistic straight shooting um, background I tended to do fix-it jobs um, for agencies or building new bits of businesses or going well why can't we just do that let's make it happen so I, I would I would sit on the fringes of the big agencies and start new stuff for them Um, And I was offered a a role as a CEO of a small agency that that needed a bit of a turnaround um, in 2013 um, with the view to selling it, really. Um, And I would take a a sort of of small equity stake in it and then would sell it. Um, But I I got to the point where I'd I'd sweated so much blood over over this thing and I was so tired of building new things that I just I did a deal with the shareholders and I did an MBO. 
mm. which was one of the greatest educational experiences in my life. Um, and um, after that, uh, three years later or three and a half years later, here I am. I've sold it. So I've sold the business. That was about six months ago. Um, I sold it to an American company. And um, I've just gradually been moving into being an NED since. And now I've ended up being busier than I've ever have been before, um, working with not only previous clients, but um, organizations which are particularly sort of socially minded. So, you know, the Mental Health First Aid England, for example, I sit on the board of that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a great gift uh, to be given the opportunity to advise rather than do. Yeah. Does it that it's for a, a great cause like mental health? make a big difference to you yeah absolutely i mean i mean you know most of my advisory roles are um unremunerated yeah you know but you know i do it because i like it and it's the right thing to do and i've, I've had my own mental health issues in the past you know i, I have a personal vested interest in in the subject um just like i have a vested interest in equality and inclusion and diversity yeah. you know? um so i think does, does, yeah, it has to matter. It, has, it just has to matter. I mean, why would you, why would you do it if it didn't? I mean, I mean, I know it's a rhetorical question, but um, I've never really tried to analyse why I do what I do. But yeah, it does have to matter. It does have, yeah, a, have yes. to have a purpose. And I, I think I can reflect the, the same things. Being involved in Grow CFO, for example, is all about wanting to pass a load of knowledge on to the next generation of finance leaders. Mm. And I was a, a board member to one of our local sixth form colleges for quite a while. And that's because I, I wanted that to put something back into education. Yeah. And again, like, like you, that was a non-remunerated one. So I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's got to matter in some way or other. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Another another CFO. I can't remember. Oh no, it was a chair. Um, it was um, Howard. What's his chops? He used to run the London Stock Exchange. Anyway, the name name escapes me. Anyway, um, I interviewed him and I asked him what advice would you give to any finance director or CFO, and he said, "Get yourself a non-executive director position immediately." Right. Because he his view was that um, you had to broaden your horizons, learn from other businesses and understand what it's like to be on the outside looking in. And um, he just said, look, if you're going to be a really good CFO, you have to have an NED position to help you do it. Yeah. Because, because you will not only bring a lot of value to the organisation you're working with, you will find other avenues, but you will learn new things that you can bring into your organisation. That's really interesting. Yeah, that you. one of the things that I've loved of, of being a, a management consultant is you see lots of different organizations and interact with with lots of different boards and different finance directors so i can really see where the finance the cfo finance director can get a lot more by being non-exec somewhere else yeah so you know, over the years you've been you've been a journalist for finance people you've been a ceo you've been a non-exec so you've had a lot of contact with with finance folk yeah. what what makes a good cfo mm. what makes a good cfo a good cfo for me or a good yeah. cfo in general well a good cfo for you 
Yeah, I mean, that's probably what I'm best qualified to talk about. And a good CFO for me is somebody who um, will look very, very closely at the underlying truth of a business or a situation. Yeah. And then will tell me honestly what the situation is. Mm-hmm. A good CFO is also somebody who will not tell me all of the time. Okay. A good CFO is somebody who would tell me when it really matters. Yeah. And so I don't really want to hear from the CFO that often, but when I do hear from them, I know it's going to be really important. Yeah. And so, so they give me my time. No news is good news. Yeah. Some news isn't necessarily bad news, but it's something you need to know about. Well, you, you always got to have some news. I mean, there's always a reporting structure. You know, every yes. month you have to have really? your meetings yeah. and you know the, the general governance of running a board. Um, but it's it's the um, I think we've got an issue here, or there's just something I want to flag with you, or um, I want to run something past you. You know, you give all of your time for those yeah. conversations. What I, what I what I don't like with with a CFO um, is somebody who is continually communicating the status quo what's going on yes. i'm like yeah it doesn't matter and but i'm not going to make that, a decision on this that monthly drumbeat of board reports and so on that you just referred to yeah in effect gives gives the exact vehicle for that regular over communication because i know when i've looked at things in the past you'll go through you'll present the PL account once a month you'll probably bore the board silly about all the differences from budget well do you really need to know that you do you do in certain occasions, but hey, so well, as in any wrong when we thought about it twelve months ago. So what? Let's yeah. just get on with things. Get on with it. Yeah, I mean, as an NED, um, I don't want um, a CFO to present me the board papers at all. No, I'm not interested. I want them to have it sorted out. And there's certain things I, I like from a, a set of board papers. But, but I do not want the meeting that I go to to be them presenting what they've already sent to me because I've read it, right? Quite, exactly. I've read everything. Yeah. I just, all, all I want is the, and I always try and suggest to, to CFOs or CEOs or heads of marketing, whoever it is when I sit on a board, is on every single slide or, or page you've put into this board report, I want on the bottom the one question you want my help with. Yeah. That's it. And if there's no question you want my help with, fine. Yeah. I'll come up with one. But, but just, just say, this is the one thing we need to talk about today. And that's fine, because then I can add value. Yeah, or hopefully value. absolutely. And I've, I've always loved traffic light systems. Hmm. But people argue about, so Kevin, tell me, what means it's gone from green to amber? Is that 5% out? Is it 10% out? Is it whatever? And I said, no. Amber means quite simply it is out of tolerance but it's fine we know about it we're doing something about it it's under control and i'd like to see a commentary against that that says here's the problem here's why it happened here's why we're doing it what we're doing about it and here's when we're expecting it back on track fine you can read that but then a red to me means ah we've got a problem houston we've got a problem let's talk about this it is out of tolerance. We know why, but hey, we don't know what to do about it. We've got some decisions to make. Yeah. And that oh. really, if you've got that, whether it's finance, whether it's marketing, whether it's production, whatever it is, if you follow that lines, then you talk about the things you're supposed to talk about in the board meeting. 
Yeah, just talk about the Reds. Just yeah. tell me what's wrong. <laughs> you know, we'll deal with exactly. it then. Yeah. I don't want to know what's right. I've read the board report. It all looks great. Well done. And and there's a certain amount of backslapping that will go on. And actually, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of calling out people who've done great work or great milestones and stuff like that. But, you know, let's not spend all of our time looking at the the the, the monthly management accounts. We read them, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're now a, a non-executive director and you're you're saying that a good idea as a finance director should be should take think about taking on non-executive director roles yeah i'll ask you a, a, a similar question what do you think makes a good non-executive director um very simply and very tritely it's not being executive yeah um because you know it's very tempting as a non-executive director to become executive especially if you're a yes. specialist and I get asked a lot of the time to help out with marketing and comms and communications, all that sort of stuff. And it's really easy for me to go into my agency professional history and go, I know how to deal with the situation, so I'm going to step in and do it. And yeah. that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. So so good energy listens, is critical, is supportive, always constructively critical, always positive. But at the same time, we'll call bullshit if they see it. Yeah. But other than that, it's just, you might want to think about this. You might want to think about that. This is where the warning flags are going. You might want to try, try about that sort of stuff. And yes, I'll sit on your digital transformation board and we can talk about it a bit more. But never, ever step too far in. Yeah, I, I completely get that. So it's a, it's a compromise be, between just being a tick in the box and saying, yes, we like what you're doing. And we're signing it off as a, a non-exec board to, to kind of being a little bit more critical to have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Oh, when I was in this agency and we had a similar problem, we did X, Y, and Z and found it worked quite well. Have you thought about that? No, yeah. 100%. And also never believe that you are better than the people who are in the business. No. I mean, as soon as you start believing that, you're in tons of trouble. Because they're the ones who see the customers day to day. They're the ones that are yeah. dealing with the problems day to day. And so, and so believing as an NED that you have the answers because it just so happened that was the way you remembered it was successful about 10 years ago. It's not actually true. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, nostalgia it was you know nostalgia is a very sort of pernicious thing when you when you when you start to believe that what happened you know back in your dim and distant memory is somehow best practice it's not you just pick you just pick the good bits out and yeah. think yeah i was i was great then no you weren't yeah exactly and i suppose something similar that i've got from a consulting background is for trying not to be the expert in everything Yes, I might know a lot about cost reduction, but at the same time, the client is the expert in the client's business. Yeah. Not me. No, that's right. I mean, they're, they're not hiring you because you're an expert in running their business. Yeah. Why they're hiring you in the first place, I don't know. I mean, when, when most organisations try and hire non-exec directors or trustees, I always get the slight sense that they don't know why they're doing it. I think yeah. it's they have to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that was my experience at the local college. I think they knew they had to tick a governance box. But once they had these non-execs, so they had these governors, then, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll fly all these papers past you. We'll, we'll get all of these reports signed off. We'll tell you about all these things. 
but we're not quite sure how we should be using you. We're not quite sure how we take your advice on board. Mm. Um, I, I think that that's a very, very astute observation that a lot of organisations don't know why they've got these non-execs. We just have to, right? Yeah. I mean, why, why do we have to comply with Data Protection Act? Oh, because we have to. Because we have to, yes. Yes. There are benefits to it, of course. We just have to get past the tick box mentality to understand yeah. where that value actually lies. And that, that is, I suppose that is a big lesson that, you know, tick box, men, tick box mentality is in so many things these days to get to the underlying reason why something's there is very important. Well, you can understand it. I mean, people don't have enough time and, and there are a lot of boxes to tick. Yeah. Um, and so, so there is a certain practicality that, yes, some of, some of a CFO's role has to be tick box because you have no choice other than that, other than making sure that you're complying. Um, <laughs> of course, you know, if you think about it really cynically, no one really cares about compliance. It doesn't really matter. It's only proof of yeah. compliance that really matters. It is, absolutely. And as a non-exec director, you just want to know that people have done the appropriate things. You don't want to actually have the detail of it. You just need to see the tick, the tick that tells you they've done all the ticking. Yeah. Yeah. But then I'd always ask them the same question, which is, you know, I know you've ticked that box. Do you really believe it? Mm. Deep down. Yeah. What, what, what is what is what is when when you're when you're virtually or figuratively, or you know, your your finger was over, your pen was over the tick box. Did you think, did you hesitate a moment before you ticked it? And that's you know, you've got to find if there's any sort of potential banana skins in there or doubts yeah and i know myself going through an exercise where you where you've got a checklist you'll tick it and you'll write a justification down but is that justification 100 percent reason for ticking it I, I can think of a number of occasions where i've ticked something i was like oh, no, i had a little bit of a yeah. well, I, I think i've got some evidence but i'm not sure <laughs> I, well you know i've got i've got a document here which i'm going to put up to the camera now i know this is probably an audio podcast and no one's going to be able to see it uh, but 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 this is one of my favorite documents um and i use it a lot when i'm in boards when people are talking about compliance and talking yes. about the importance of policy and, and this is one of the last remaining copies of the enron code of ethics mm. From July 2000, and yes. this is the official document that Enron put out on how to behave and how to deal with uh, corporate governance and appropriate behaviour. And there's even a page on shredding documents and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, the values of the business. And it doesn't mean a thing. This document means nothing. And it was put together at great expense and sent to absolutely everybody. And they ticked a box and they had a code of ethics. Yeah. But it does. It didn't mean that the underlying business wasn't crooked. Mm. And that's that's another thing. You know, I, I'm always looking out for is you've got loads of policies, loads of paperwork. Are you actually living them? Indeed. Yes. And the biz, the Enron the company that brought down the great Arthur Anderson. It did? Yes. Well, I, I mean, I, it wasn't that great by the end. It certainly wasn't. But was, wasn't there a, a strange one there that somebody was exonerated in the end of all of that after years and years of stuff, after everything had happened? I, I, I'm, I'm sure lots of people were thrown under the bus by lots of other people. I'm sure lots of innocent people uh, were destroyed in the disaster that was Enron. 
Because uh, were... highly likely from my corporate experience that there's always an, an awful lot of ass covering at other people's expense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, I mean, you, you're always going to throw people under the bus before you throw yourself under the bus if you belong to a, an unethical way of, you know, doing business. And, and you know, it's not changing. I mean, we've, we've got other... Um, companies at the moment if you look at what's happening in silicon valley right you know that the vc fueled culture which is probably a conversation for another day but you know this idea that chasing the dream and the vision at what point does that become a lie at what point are you defrauding investors by just overestimating everything and saying you are going to change the world and um let's face it every every startup particularly every tech startup says they're going to do that yeah. but a very small percentage of them actually come through and, and deliver anything. Yeah, but you think about the money. You think about the money that's going into these companies. Yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, sometimes it's just the outright lies that the, the money is raised against. It's, um, mm. it's quite, um, it's quite uh, worrying. I can sense there's a whole other podcast in there. And I can also sense... Tom, it'd be interesting if you'd back and talk about that management buyout through to sale of the company. I think that could could make a future episode in itself. Yeah, I'd be very happy to do that. I'll have to change the names to protect the guilty. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Just to close, we we mentioned the question that went back uh, 40 years. Is Is a finance director strategic? Is a CFO strategic? In your view, is there a difference between a finance director and a CFO? No. No, none at all. And and the reason why I say this is probably based in history rather than reality today. But um, we used to do analysis of the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 350. And the most senior finance person uh, within the uh, FTSE 100, at the time we did it, I think there were... 49 group FDs who were the most senior yep. finance person. And they were like, you know, 30 CFOs and some others. Mm. Um, some of them were trained accountants, some were not. And I think, you know, it, the, the, the gradual Americanization of the language and the nomenclature we use around the finance function is, is just, it's just happening, right? We're having more chiefs yeah. of everything. Um, but I don't think there is a difference between a, a, a finance director and a CFO. I think at, at the top end, it's just a question of language. Yes. Um, uh, especially if it was a group finance director, you know, it's the same thing, right? Um mm-hmm. The, 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 the reality still remains that if your number two is your financial controller, then you are the top of the tree. It doesn't matter what your, what your job title, title is. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd agree with you. And I always associated the, the CFO title just simply indicating something about the size of the company at one stage. It's small to medium companies had finance directors, big organizations had CFOs. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. It seems that that the CFO exists in the small startup as well as the the big multinational. People people join for titles as well as for you know as as, as well as for you know the the role. And so you know if if you can have a title that sounds grander, 
and, and you know, recruitment companies are fueling some of this stuff, then it just makes sense. I don't think it changes the role in any way. I mean, HSBC, do they have a CFO? They always used to have a Greek group finance director. I'd have to look that one up. I'd have to look that one up as well. It's certainly in the the more traditional banks, they do tend to stick to the more traditional titles. It's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, that has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Grow CFO Show. 